You're listening to RevOps FM with Justin Norris. Welcome to RevOps FM, everyone. Big day today on the show as we're joined by one of my favorite go-to-market thought leaders, Kyle Coleman. Kyle spent six years leading sales development at Looker before moving to Clary, where he grew from leading sales dev to being chief marketing officer. Most recently, Kyle started another new chapter as CMO at Copy.ai, which is a really innovative AI platform for go-to-market teams. I've been experimenting with it. Definitely something you should check out. Kyle is one of LinkedIn's top voices and he's got the blue badge to prove it, but I wanted to share a quick personal anecdote before we jump in that you may not know. Don't get scared. Kyle, it's nothing bad, but this was back in 2022. I was actually working with a BDR, the startup in Outbound Motion at my company, and we noticed some intense signals from Clary pop up in our system. And since revenue enablement is one of the personas that we target, I thought this was a great opportunity to prospect Kyle. So we worked together crafting the email. We took the shot. And Kyle, you responded pretty quickly. As I remember, I don't think you were on the market for anything, but you were friendly. You were supportive. You said you'd dig around internally and you were very encouraging to that BDR. So it says a lot to me. You know, you've built a big part of your brand around supporting SDRs on LinkedIn. And if someone is an equally nice guy when no one's looking, that means a lot. So it's one of several reasons I'm very excited to welcome you to the show today. Thanks for being here, Kyle. Very kind, Justin. Very kind. I'm excited to be here. Let's dig in. All right. Well, mentioned SDRs. Let's start there because that has been a huge part of your career, something you've talked a lot about. Where are we today with SDRs? What's your point of view? What role do they serve in a B2B GTM and why are they important? SDRs are dead. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. 12 million but, people's heart just dropped into their chest. I know. I'm sorry. I can't help myself. In all seriousness, what the SDR role has become, Justin, is unfortunately, in many cases, not every case, but speaking in generalities here, a relatively tight, bound, specialized role that's responsible for getting a foot in the door and passing off a meeting to an account executive and then going and doing that again. And while that is very useful, it is, in my opinion, too narrow. And in all the times I've worked with and managed SDR teams internally, and certainly the SDRs that I've coached, I've tried my best to make the role more horizontal, make it broader, make it more than just about executing, frankly, pretty robotic tasks of sending emails or making cold calls. And while that is hard, I'm not saying it's not hard, I'm just saying it's too narrow. And so what I've seen happen is... The chasm between an SDR and an AE has grown wider and wider as the SDR role has gotten more and more boxed in and more specialized. And so that growth path from SDR to AE started to become really difficult and is today really difficult for a lot of people. The SDR is not generating as much business acumen as they need to. They don't understand the product and the personas as well as they probably need to. They don't know the sales process nearly as well as they need to. And so sales hiring managers say, why should I take the time? to train up this person when I can go hire a quote-unquote experienced salesperson to fill the role on my team. And that is a major problem. And so what I believe will happen that with the evolution of the role, of the SCR role, as guided by AI, is a broadening of horizons, a widening of the aperture of the SCR role, so that they have to spend less time on the mundane, menial tasks like account plan creation and CRM updates and, and all those types of things. And they can focus more on the truly strategic things about their company, their personas, their developing the business acumen, doing the things they need to do to really set themselves up for whatever the next stage of their career is. So I expect the SDR role to be rethought and reconfigured to be a truer inside sales role in down markets. You know, if you're selling to SMB, I think that people have bandwidth, entry-level, quote-unquote, salespeople will have bandwidth to be full cycle. And then if you're supporting an upmarket segment, I expect the SCR to be a much more strategic co-pilot with that tenured AE, providing real value beyond just getting a foot in the door. So that's the evolution that I see, and a lot of that is going to be AI-assisted, but I'll pause there. I want to give a shout-out to the sponsor of today's episode, Knack. You know, I love marketing automation software, but let's be honest, the email and landing page builders are usually terrible. You can't make it nice without a developer, and marketers are going to find a way to break things or go off-brand. You do not have time for that. So Knack is totally different. You set the guidelines and then give your users a building experience that's slick, modern, and beautiful. 
When they're done, everything goes to your map at the push of a button. And don't worry, it supports global teams, approval workflows. It's got your integrations. So head on over to revops.fm forward slash NAC. That's K-N-A-K. And get a special offer just for my listeners. No, I mean, that's fascinating. And so let's just double click on on one of those ideas around widening the aperture on an SDR and certainly having AI assist them with those tasks. I think that's a total no-brainer and we can talk about that. But just in terms of how that SDR is positioned relative to the AE, because you're quite right in a lot of the scenarios I've worked in and with a lot of the BDRs I've worked with day to day, they're in that very narrow role. They're like, qualify, don't pitch, don't do this. Like It's all a lot of don'ts and a lot of do's and then it's handed over. What does that more strategic partnership look like in your experience or in your vision? So a lot of times the guidance you'll hear SDRs receive, and I'm guilty of having given this guidance to SDRs and even thinking this way when I was an SDR is to quote unquote, sell the meeting. So sell the time. And that's a very different way of thinking about things than selling the product or selling the solution or selling the value or something like that. And that mindset shift is a really, really important one for SDRs to have because it necessarily means you need to actually understand your product more. You need to understand your personas at a much deeper level. Those value props that you're giving can't just be one-liner value props that you send in an email. You need to actually be able to unpack that and have a real conversation with somebody as if you know, you're standing at a trade show booth or you're having a drink or whatever. Like You need to be able to have the 5, 10, 15-minute conversation with your prospects. And if that's the standard that you hold yourself to, not to be able to answer every question. Nobody at your company can answer every question. I promise you, like that's impossible. But you need to be able to answer the high-level questions about why somebody should care, and specifically, why should an executive care about your product? Because especially in 2024, the bottoms-up sale is probably long gone, you know, with PLG being the exception. But for the most part, SDRs can and should get used to, instead of selling you know, to a manager, individual, contributor-type persona, You've got to be able to sell to the VP, to the C-level personas. And that, again, requires a different way of thinking, a different way of training, a different set of enablement, a different standard that you're holding SDRs to. And so to be able to do that, it means that SDRs can't sit down in a boiler room and make 200 dials a day and just listen to the phone ring for six hours. They can't do that. It's a misuse of time. So you need to find a better way for them to leverage their time. How can they learn more about personas to have a more strategic type approach in their outreach. How can you challenge your SDR team to not just be executing that super high quantity of tasks, but rather have a more strategic approach to the quality of the outreach is what matters more. And as a market, if we can make that transition, I think everybody's going to be better off for it because it means way less you know, inbox inundation for everybody, way less just spray and pray thoughtless tactics and way more strategy, creativity, a much more human approach to sales. I know that sounds sort of counterintuitive because I'm saying AI can help unlock a lot of this and create more humanity, but I really do believe it's true. Following that path even further, if we think about the roles that an SDR plays today on the inbound side, you know, they're often gatekeepers. It's like, I want to learn about this product. I have a need. And SDR is like, hold on a second. I need to make sure that you're really worth my AE's time. There's something a little bit almost demeaning about that, but it's, I get why we do it because for that very reason, we have to economize. On the outbound side, you know, they're hunters. They're chasing you down. They're doing things. They're putting memes in box to try to get your attention. And the vision that you've described is one in which, you know, they are able to be more strategic and they are able to offer more value. Practically speaking, how do we do that? How do we take a you know, 24-year-old that's like one of their first jobs out of school and get them to a place where they can offer legitimate value to an executive to be worthy of like having that conversation to get to the next step? This is the million-dollar question, Justin. And it's something that when I've been running SDR teams, it's taken months and months of training and enablement and onboarding and all the rest to try and build this skill set. It's a difficult skill set to build. And I think AI can shrink that time a little bit, but not entirely. Like, you know, somebody who is either, and in many SDR roles, you're either new to the industry or you're making a career transition from teaching, you're going to transition into SaaS or something like that, or it's your first job out of college and college grads have no idea how to do anything. (laughs) And so whatever the case is, it's pretty rare to get uh, an SDR type persona or profile who has a ton of meaningful business or SaaS technology business experience. So you're kind of teaching them from the ground up. And what I've always focused a lot on is 
when you're doing like, it sounds really boring, but it's so important, which is the account plan. (laughs) Back to basics here. But the account plan is not just where they headquartered and how many employees do they have and what technology do they use. That's important stuff. You need to catalog that. It's where are they making bets for growth in 2024? What is the company's strategy for a public company? This is very easy to find. Like they are legally required <laughs> to outline these strategies in their 10K and their earnings, their annual reports, their earning statements, all those things. For private companies, it's not impossible to come by this information. The CEOs of these companies give interviews, they issue press releases, they have funding announcements where they say, We just raised $50 million in order to XYZ. And the SDR needs to be able not just to find that information, but then to connect the dots between this strategic initiative that the company has and their company's value prop. And that's where the magic happens. And the better you can train them, and from an enablement standpoint, if you can codify these things and say, when you're researching a company, look for a company who is expanding internationally or rolling out a new product or undergoing an M&A or bucket these things. And then you'll be able to say, every time you have or run into this situation, here's how to position copy AI's value props in order to achieve those initiatives. And if you can be the one that SDR that's connecting those dots between the strategic initiatives and your company's value prop, you're developing business acumen and you can have real conversations because hopefully you understand what that company is doing, what it means and what its implications are. It's not an overnight exercise, Justin. It takes a lot of time. But when you have one person doing this, that's great as an SDR. When you have a team of SDRs that are doing this, it's what they talk about. And so you're able to then create this sort of virtuous cycle where the team is learning from each other and messaging and positioning gets sharpened by the lessons that they learn in real conversations and the cycle feeds itself. It's almost like a management consultant light skill set in a way, taking that big picture point of view, understanding the company dynamics, where they are, what they want to do. And I've been part of hiring SDRs, certainly hired a lot more SDRs than me. Are there specific qualities or skills or what are the things that you look for where you see that in that, maybe they've never done anything before, so you can't rely on experience, but you look at that person, you're like, they've got that thing that I can build to be that person that you just described. Hundred percent. There are three main things that I always look for, and we can talk about how to screen for these things if you'd like. Number one on the list by a mile is curiosity. If you're in a sales role and you're not curious, it ain't gonna work. It's just not gonna work. You have to be able to be willing and able to ask questions and self-serve answers. Every single one, without fail, successful salesperson SDR I've seen has had this super high degree of curiosity, self-started. That's non-negotiable. So curiosity is number one on the list. Number two is passion. And I don't mean necessarily like, oh, I'm really passionate about the, the product I sell. Hopefully I can get you there. But in an interview setting, I'm looking for people that have some sort of fire in their belly, something in life that's exciting to them. I see the guitars behind you, Justin. I assume that you're a guitar player. If we're in an interview setting, I would ask you, about, hey, what's going on? Tell me the story. How long you've been playing guitar? Is it something that when you're doing it, you lose track of time? Like I want to hear about the thing in your life that you're really passionate about, and I want you to sell me on it. And if you do a good job, then I say, okay, great. Now all I need to do is get you excited about my product, and that passion, that energy can shine through. Like That's a lot of what salesmanship is. So curiosity and passion. And then the third one, I used to ask people to tell me about you know something in their life that they had a high degree of success with. They worked really hard on something and they, and they were really successful. And that was always a, a pretty interesting conversation and, and useful for me. I've changed the framing on this to be more around, tell me about a process you've created that yielded success. Because that's what sales is. I don't want somebody who can just make something happen once and it was miraculous and they have no idea how they did it. I want somebody who's thoughtful about the steps that you take to achieve some sort of outcome. Because to me, that means you're taking pride in the steps that are required. You're taking pride in the process itself and not just getting tied to outcomes. And so if you have that process orientation and if you have experience having in school and work and your personal life, whatever, I don't care where it comes from, but people who have that kind of process or systems thinking are typically people that do very well in sales roles. It's almost a little bit of a dash of ops in there. I was thinking as, as you were talking as well, there's a certain resourcefulness. I'm thinking back as well to people who've been on the BDR team, who've gotten a really good job, 
unfortunately gotten promoted to AE far too quickly in some cases because you lose that skill. But I remember this one instance where somebody was showing us what they did because they'd had some success. So they're like, all right, show the team what you did. And they took uh, a person, they put them in a cadence and they're like, yeah, and I thought the subject line was not that good. So I changed it to XYZ. I'm like, oh, they actually, they were fixing our mistakes. They were thinking that way. Yeah. Not everybody has that, do they? Not everybody has it and not every manager or team environment allows for that, Justin. A lot of teams or managers say, hey, this is our prescribed process. Go click the buttons, go execute the process. And to me, that's crazy. The purpose of having an SDR, the purpose of having a human in the role is for their brain. It's not for their ability to hit send email. Anybody can do that. Robots can do that. I want people that are thinking, I want process to evolve bottoms up. Like the way that I used to do my SDR stuff in 2015 has some similarities today, but it's very different. If I went in and tried to force my 2015 playbook down the throats of modern SDRs, they would not be successful. They just wouldn't. And so what I encourage managers to do is provide a process framework to your teams. People that are new in the role, people that are new to the industry, whatever, they need some guardrails or else they're going to be totally lost and they're going to fly off the highway. So provide some process frameworks, but within that framework, expect and encourage that evolution. Expect and encourage people to try new stuff, to experiment, create that room for failure. That's totally fine. We learn when things don't go well. We learn way more from failure than we do from success. And so if your team is emboldened and empowered to try stuff, knows that they're going to be celebrated and not punished for experimentation, you're going to have an always evolving process that's only going to get better over time. And that also creates a really nice team environment where mm-hmm. SDRA is very willing to help SDRB and vice versa. And their best practices get translated and codified into whatever new process there is. And so that's the way I've always operated. And it, it kills me to see so many SDR teams just getting the whip cracked because they're quote unquote, not doing it the prescribed way. And that it just doesn't make sense to me. So maybe one more bonus question on SDRs, because the way what you're describing to me, it raises the specter of like at a certain point, if SDRs are just literally following steps, pushing buttons and doing A, B, and C in a prescribed order, it sounds a lot like what AI does. And so at a certain point, you're like, well, we really could just replace this with AI. And I've seen a lot of people out there talking about like the future of outbound, almost as like a growth ops person, just managing these AI inboxes and sort of pulling the puppet strings, but really yeah. it's all being done by machines. And to an extent of all you have is mediocre BDRs pushing buttons, you'd say we'll get a lot more predictability from those machines than we would from trying to get people to follow that. So you really would need those more strategic level, more mature, if you like, BDRs to avoid that. I guess I'm curious for your point of view, do you ever see some of this function like, yeah, we could just fully automate that with AI, or you're very much like human in the loop. Like we've got to keep doing that because that's what drives value. As long as buyers are people, sellers have to be people. So if there's a universe at some point in the future where the procurement folks are literally robots and not just figuratively (laughs) robots, like that's the universe I see, Justin. There's always going to be a human in the loop when we're selling to people. That's just the way it is. I mean, my, and I know this may be a bit myopic and maybe not the best analogy to draw, but gosh, when I'm trying to get customer support from a bank or a restaurant or whatever, and I'm just in this nonstop loop with the chat bot or I'm on the robot call and I'm trying to, yes, you talk to human. And yeah. it's so frustrating. And we can't allow that kind of friction to make its way into the buying process. And so again, as long as there's a human on the other side, that I think that the human in the loop is extremely important. Now, the difference or the distinction between now and this future that we're talking about is what the humans spend their time on. And I want my humans spending as much time speaking with other humans in a meaningful, impactful way than executing robotic tasks that the robot can and should do, frankly. And so if we can optimize for that future, I think that teams will get smaller, frankly. I don't think we're going to need a team of 100 SDRs to go and support a $100 million business. But I don't know what the number is, 50, 60, I don't know. But teams will get smaller, but they're going to get a lot more productive. And that to me is really the key here. It's both efficiency and effectiveness. And really focusing on that efficacy, effectiveness side of the coin is extremely important. Not to say that there's going to be a job elimination. I think that the job broadens in its scope and increases in productivity, which unlocks a ton of economic potential for new companies and new everything. So 
I, I think it's that the pie is going to continue to grow. And some people understandably are threatened by this potentiality. I think it's really exciting though. And I think it's going to up-level everybody. We'll talk a bit more about how the role that technology can play there. I want to first talk a bit more about you. And one of the things I like to do when I look at people that have had kind of an exceptional trajectory, and you've done a really good job, by the way, on your LinkedIn profile of like, each year, like I started doing this at the end of the year, I was managing this many people. Like I could really trace the steps of your career. And it's been like a highlight reel. Like each year was bigger and better. It went from success to success. Obviously, people don't usually highlight things that go wrong on their profiles. So maybe there's more to the story that you didn't fully tell. But I guess what I'm getting to with that long-winded question is what's the recipe, I suppose, that you've attributed that success to? Usually people have certain mindset routines, yeah. structures that they set for themselves. What's your recipe for success if you have one? It's a really good question and it's really easy to connect the dots looking backwards, you know, to borrow the, the line from Steve Jobs. And so if you would have asked me 10 years ago, if I was going to be a CMO today, I probably would have laughed and been like, no, how the hell would that happen? <laughs> but the path and what I have done is a couple things. One, there's a really good book. Well, there's a series of books that I've read recently. One is called The Confident Mind. Another is called Learned Excellence. Learned Excellence is very new. I just finished it. And it's all about this mindset that I realize I, I feel like I have, which is I say yes to basically every opportunity that comes my way in a work context. So, hey, there's a fire burning in this side of the business. We need somebody to go figure out how to put out this fire. And I run toward that fire. And I'm like, I have no idea if I can actually do this, but I know I can try. And the worst thing that happens is I try and fail, but I learn a ton along the way. And being predisposed to running toward that fire, saying yes to those opportunities, having confidence that maybe I don't know exactly what I'm doing, but I, I have confidence enough to figure it out. That's the mindset for me that's worked really well. So as an example, when I was at Looker, I was responsible for the SDR team. The team grew to about 70 people by the time I left. And I worked directly for four years, hand in hand with the VP of demand gen and reported directly to the CMO. So I learned a lot from those two women, Jen and Lisa, what does good look like from a demand generation and marketing standpoint? Like just learned from them by osmosis. Fast forward to my time at Clary in 2019, the head of demand generation left the company. And I just raised my hand and was like, hey, I can keep the train on the tracks here. I know what good looks like. I work very closely with these same folks in my days at Looker. And to their credit and to my benefit, the leadership at Clary said, okay, yeah, try your hand at it. We're going to go interview to try and backfill this person, but like keep the train on the track. And so I just dove in and just figured out like, what are we doing? What's working? What do we need to do differently? How can we get the demand generation and growth marketing engine working more closely with sales and SDR and just tried to do what I thought was best based on what I had seen happen in the past and temporary became permanent. I ended up owning that growth marketing demand gen marketing ops function. And that was kind of my story at Clary. The same thing happened with customer marketing and product marketing, content marketing, value engineering, all of these things. And I was just the one that was always like, I'll try, like, I'll see what happens. And with the right people, and I'm not taking full credit for this by any means, because there were excellent people at every step of the way that I basically figured out how to get the most leverage out of, how to put on the right responsibilities, the, the right sorts of things that there were projects that they were focused on, and just found ways to optimize things. So be open-minded. Your job is not your job. Have confidence that you can try something and fail and not be a failure and learn from it. And that's what's animated my thinking for a very long time. There's a scenario in which somebody follows that advice and it's like, yes, I'll do this, I'll do this. And they, they get overwhelmed and they fail. Yeah. You've done it and you've managed to succeed. And I think the last part of your answer there, maybe it, it touched on something that's very important, which is a want to say maybe delegation, prioritization, yeah. but it's not just that you did it, but you did it and you were able to succeed at it, which can be really hard. What were the things once you had taken on that challenge that enabled you, you think, to meet each of those challenges successfully? Or, you know, even it failed, but failed in, in a way that allowed you to fail forward rather than like, sorry, Kyle, this is working out. hundred percent. It was not super smooth the entire time, Justin. Like I had my fair share of facepalm moments, which was fine because I was expecting them. I was anticipating them. And even when I was speaking with the powers that be at Clary at the time, I would say like, hey, so you know, I'm not an expert in this. Now, I'm confident I'm going to go figure it out, but it's going to be a little crunchy for a little while. 
So expectation setting with the people there is really important. I never tried to put on airs that I was going to go and be able to fix something overnight if it was something I had no experience doing. The second thing though, this is going to sound so boring, but necessary fundamental foundational stuff is I am hyper-focused on documentation. (laughs) Get it out of your head, get it out of the heads of the other people and get it on paper. You'd be shocked, or maybe you wouldn't be, about how little people are willing to lean into documentation. Here's the strategy for demand generation. Here's the roles and responsibilities for who does what. Here's a process outline for how we run a campaign. The basic stuff, just get it down and documented. And then what you can do is you can say, Natasha, you're responsible for this and this. I've seen you do this in the past. It's all you. This is an outline. It should continue to evolve. But if you're going and executing these five things, we're going to be golden. Laura, here's what I need from you. Great. You got it. Good. And you just go delegate out the, the right things. Like, I was not running day-to-day demand generation by any means. Like If you asked me to go run a campaign for a LinkedIn ads right now, I wouldn't know what to do. <laughs> but I know what the output should look like. I know what good messaging positioning sounds like. And then I defer and delegate to the actual experts who know what they're doing and can go and optimize those campaigns. And so as long as you are willing to put in the non-glamorous time to create the non-glamorous output that is documentation and R&R, crisply defined R&R, the rest sort of takes care of itself. You empower people to go and do the jobs that they're experts at. And that's what I've been doing for a long time or tried to anyway. Big thanks goes out to User Gems for sponsoring today's episode. We all know that outbound is tough. You dial and you email and you get the door slammed in your face by people who don't know who you are. Now imagine a world where you're reaching people who know your product, love your product, and are actually happy to hear from you. User Gems makes that a reality. They identify your customers and champions who change jobs and automatically push new contacts into your CRM so your team can follow up. Their outreach playbooks make it dead simple to get started and their team is amazing. If you're not reaching out to customer job changers, you're missing opportunities. Head on over to revops.fm forward slash user gems for a special offer just for my listeners. You won't find a bigger documentation nerd than me. Maybe there's one or two out there. But yeah, I have 150 pages of my knowledge base and I believe in that so strongly. So I don't think it's boring. I think it's the secret weapon. But so having a great team, are there things in all of that that you were intentional about saying no to? Because for every yes that you said, you know, time is finite, unless you're superhuman and don't sleep, which may well be the case. But how do you figure out what to say no to as you're saying yes to things? That's a great question. So the framing for what I say yes to are are more of opportunities that are experiences that I think will be both interesting and challenging and therefore fulfilling for me. So when I'm saying say yes to everything, it's more, it's not about just take on more work. It's more about be intentional with what experiences you're trying to get and why. And when something you see something or something is presented to you that's in that universe, like go and do it. Now you're totally right a marketing team, an operations team, a sales they can't do everything or else you're going to fail miserably or burn people out. And so the way that I try and operate is with the key stakeholders who for me right now is our CEO. And this was certainly the way that I operated at my previous company was CEO was very interested in marketing, which is a great thing, is my relationship with Paul, our current CEO is documented. Here's what we're doing and here's why. And here's what we're not doing. And here's why. Two different lists. Here's what's in, here's what's out, intentionally out. If you want anything to be done on this list or anything on some undefined list somewhere, it means that something on the do list needs to fall off. And that's the way it goes. And every week in our one-on-one, we have these conversations about priorities. Yeah, are these five things still the priority? Yes, good, great. If not, what needs to be removed? And you have to have this intentional framing to show people, A, we, I have a three-person marketing team right now, including me. We can't do everything. It's impossible. So we need to limit it down to what are the most important things that we're doing. And then the list of the things that are backburnered or we'll save for another day is growing every single day. But it's important to keep that documented so that you can show people, we're thinking about this. We've intentionally decided not to do it. Thanks for your input. Keep them coming. But here's what we are focused on and here's why. Here's where we're going to provide the biggest lift and most leverage to the business. Here's how we're going to generate the most demand. Here's how you, Mr. or Mrs. Sales Rep, here's how your pipeline's going to be full. 
because of these things, not because of these other things. So very intentional about the conversation, very direct about the conversation and trying to be as comprehensive as possible with the documentation. I love that because if you're not really clear on that, life can be kind of like a series of, you know, struggling with guilt or struggling with stress. Like, oh, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. Like it's kind of paralyzing almost. It's very liberating. And speaking of which, you seem very cheerful and happy for a person that has big numbers, you know, quotas like, and that's been your experience. Maybe you're just used to it, but as an ops person, it seems daunting to have this big quote or a number attached to you. How do you think about that? Is it just knowing that you're going to hit it? That's a large part of it is the self-confidence. And I know it can sound really arrogant, but again, this book, The Confident Mind is a really good primer on how to have this approach that maintains confidence without hopefully sounding or coming across as unearned confidence or arrogance. And so I try and maintain that confidence because confidence is contagious. And if I'm operating with my team and I show up as, I don't know, I don't know if we're going to be able to do this. Guess what? It ain't going to work. Like people are going to, that, that kind of pessimism or that kind of attitude is also contagious. I realized pretty early in my career, I didn't realize, I should say, until I started managing people, how much my personal mindset, my behavior, my words, my actions, how much that trickled down and across the rest of the team. And I found when I, I think I had a team of about four or so people in the early days at Looker, and I did not show up super well in a meeting. I was upset for some other reason. I allowed those emotions to follow me into a team meeting. And then I just kind of saw the rest of the day, their heads weren't in it. They were not productive. And I basically decided in that moment that my mindset, I can control it. There's no reason why you can't. If you're not having a good day, change your mind and have a good day. Like it's possible. It's all, a lot of it is mental. Now I know there's stuff in real life that will always come up and you need to be mindful of that. But a lot of it really is mental. And so as soon as I realized how much my own style trickles down and across the team, I said, I need to control this more. I need to show up with energy, with positivity, with confidence, with optimism, because the rest of the team is going to feed off that. And if that's what they see me doing, hopefully they'll mirror that in many ways. And hopefully we'll get the most out of the team. I also realized, Justin, that people like working with happy people. People don't like working with folks that are super down or negative or pessimistic. I want to be somebody that people come to, that people trust, that people want to pull into their projects. That's who I want to be. And so manifesting that positivity has been maybe a bit of a superpower for me that's worked pretty well. That superpower was the word that was on the tip of my lips because, you know, I, I worked in consulting for a while before my current job. So you see inside a lot of different companies yeah. and you see, unfortunately, executives that may be somewhat effective in their way and navigating their companies. But they lead maybe a little bit with fear, with anger, with forcefulness, with, you know, it'll take you a certain way, but it doesn't take you all the way. And it's a lot better what you just said. I want to talk about your day. Actually get a little bit into the nitty gritty. I'm thinking start your day, open your computer. What's your first, second, and third? How do you do that? Yeah, my workday starts before I open my computer, Justin, because I find that as soon as I do open the computer, if I don't have a plan, the day can kind of spiral out of control. So before I open my computer... I find some amount of time, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, however long it takes for me to decide what are the top three things I have to get done today. Non-negotiable. I have to do these things. And what's the number one thing I have to do to keep like high impact, high leverage, most strategic thing? What is the one thing I need to get done? And I will always budget time to go and do those three things. And importantly, I communicate to my team on every Monday. And every Friday, every Monday, I say, hey, here's what I'm focused on this week. And again, written down, documented. Here's what I'm focused on this week, every Monday. And they do the same. And then on Friday, I'll do written checkouts to say, how much progress did I make against these things? So I have a weekly cadence that tries to organize things into higher level buckets. And then every day, in service of those high level buckets, what do I need to get done? And I move the meetings that I don't need to have. And I cancel the meetings I don't need to take. And I control my time. And a new way of thinking about it in this book, Learned Excellence, where he talks about this calendaring process and the way that he color codes his time, green, yellow, and red, the red things you just absolutely can't move. Yellows are move for a good reason and greens are just get them out of here. They can move around. And if you think about your time in that way and you're not afraid to like really like schedule yourself, then you're going to get a lot done and it becomes non-negotiable. So if I block an hour to do a thing, 
I damn well better do that thing or else I'm failing myself, my team, my company. And so be very intentional about what you need to do every week. Be very intentional about what you need to do every day and plan your time so that you can go and do these things. And it's not rocket science, but it's really hard to develop the discipline to go and do this. I highly recommend you start somewhere. And if you can start by what's the number one thing you need to do today, even that exercise is really valuable. And that's just been something I I don't know how long I've been doing it, at least probably 10 years at this point. It's been really helpful for me. It's a way of cutting through the complexity, the million and one things, the million and one emails, meetings, it distills it down to those bedrock items. And a lot of people will say, if you look at your calendar from yesterday or whatever, and you just look at the white space, you'll ask people, hey, what did you do during this white space? And they'll say, oh, I use it to catch up. Catch up on what? Control your time. It's not to say that you shouldn't have white space in your calendar. I know you need to reset mentally and all that, but you can be much more intentional about that time. And even if you just block 30 minutes for inbox triage, give yourself half an hour to be intentionally focused on getting through your inbox as opposed to letting it consume you. And then all of a sudden, two hours, you just spent staring at your inbox and clicking around on LinkedIn or whatever and like, what are you doing? So people waste a lot of time and I try my best to not fall victim to that. Of course, I do every now and again, I'm human, but I try and be really intentional about scheduling everything and owning, controlling my actions, my activities, way more so than the other way around. When I do it, and I'm more often than not, I have a really solid plan. I'm done by 5 or 6 p.m. I can go live my life. This is what happens. And when people say they're getting burnt out or when people say they have too much to do, more often than not, it's because A, they're focused on the wrong stuff. They don't, they're not maintaining that do not do list. And B, time management is really poor. And they're spending time on things that are below the line that are not in service of the things they need to do. And they feel like they have to go work 16-hour days to get it all done. And more often than not, you don't. You talked about LinkedIn. It's been a big part of your journey, I, I think. You're you know, one of the top B2B creators out there. You've got the little coveted blue badge, not the little yellow ones that you can get just by doing the bidding of the AI and, <laughs> and answering those questions, but the blue ones that are actually hard to get. And I think a lot of people know you through that. What's that experience been like? And speaking about time management, you've prioritized that to achieve that success there. Why has it been important? How's it been contributing to your growth? One of the most important things, and this probably won't be terribly surprising to you, Justin, based on what we've talked about, for me is clear thinking and reflection. And the posts that you see from me are very intentional, of course, meant to help the audience and I want to help as many people as I can. But in many cases, it helps me to think through a lot of these points. What am I trying to say? And what is an effective way of communicating that? And by sitting down and really forcing myself to think and to write and to edit and to do the things that create a LinkedIn post, it forces reflection for me. So I started posting on LinkedIn every day or most days about four years ago. And a lot of what I was posting on at the time was just SDR best practices. And it was really useful for me because I got to sit down and really think about what is a good email? I've trained a hundred people on this. I've never really thought about breaking it down and dissecting it. And so the force exercise of doing that made me a much better thinker and made me a much better presenter, maybe a better trainer, a better enabler, and has the virtue of hopefully at least helping a lot of other people that are uh, consuming the content. So that's always been the dual purpose is help as many people as I can do the job the right way or what I think is the right way and crystallize my own thoughts so that when I'm training or enabling or bring a new product to market or whatever, I have now the muscle built to think and to write and to be clear and to be a good communicator. That's what the whole journey on LinkedIn has taught me is how to communicate effectively and how to think really crisply. And this sort of transitions nicely into the subject of marketing generally, which increasingly the ability to be out there and actually speak directly to your market is a big part of that. Yes, trade shows are still there and, and big ad buys and stuff like that, but thought leaders are out there. And I saw you do that on behalf of Clary. You're out there and you're continuing to do that now. How much does LinkedIn and, and being out there on social play into the role of marketing today from your point of view as a CMO? It's critical. As we mentioned before, people buy from people. Of course, your brand matters. And of course, all those things matter. You need to show up well. But it's not like the 1970s where there's one option and people are going to go buy IBM. Like People want to buy from people. And the better the people at your company are stewards of your brand, of your culture, the better off you're going to be. It is just such a virtuous cycle that you can create. 
individually, what it helps me with is I get to go and test messaging and positioning all the time. I, I, we're launching new products at Copy AI basically every day, and I get to be on the front lines and say, hey, here's what we just did. Check it out. Think it's cool? And based on the responses that I get from my audience, which I've been fortunate enough to build over the years, I can then bring it back to the product team and say, hey, we kind of missed the mark here and here. Let's go and tweak this, and then we can roll it back out and reintroduce it to the folks. So I get rapid feedback loop on messaging and positioning. I get super good feedback for sales assets and for the product team and for our website. It's just an incredible little Petri dish that I get rapid feedback from a trusted audience that I don't know how else you get that. So brand building, demand building, and rapid testing for messaging, positioning, and product, it checks all the boxes. It's addicting, isn't it? Like that, just the ability to put something out there and maybe it flops or maybe people are like, yes, this is me. Like I'm there. Yeah. It's a rapid response focus group that's always on anytime and it's free. It's crazy. All it takes is 15 minutes a day from me. When you think about marketing generally, as you moved from sales development into marketing, how do you conceptualize that role? How do you think about the job of a marketing leader? Like what's job one in a nutshell? The reason I gravitated toward SDR to begin with in my career was because it sat right between sales and marketing. And I was really interested in that intersection because I sort of intuitively grasped the fact that being an effective SDR and an SDR leader requires you to be at least somewhat fluent, if not very fluent, in both marketing and sales. I wouldn't trade my background for anything. I, I think I have a really good background to lead marketing because a lot of what SDR is doing is message testing. We're the front lines. And if your company allows the SDRs, allows, quote unquote, to write their own emails, we get the keys to the castle. We're the first brand impression for thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people. And that's pretty cool. It's a lot of pressure, but it's a lot of responsibility as well. And what I got to do was I got to learn what are people responding to? What about this subject line? What about this value prop? What about the way we describe what our product does is interesting to people. And I developed this capacity to avoid some of the pitfalls of marketers, which is using fancy language unnecessarily or being really focused on yourself instead of your audience. And so what is job one of a marketing leader? Enormous customer empathy, really understanding the problems and their jobs to be done and showing them how your product or solution or service or whatever is a better way of accomplishing those things. And if you can do that, and you have a really deep understanding of your customer, and you can communicate to them effectively, that's way more than half the battle. Every great marketing leader I speak to seems to say some variation of that. It pleases me that there's this consistency. You know, That's good. All the different things that change and come and go, that those core truths remain self-evident, so to speak. And speaking of things that change and the latest and the greatest, let's talk about copy AI. And is it copy AI or copy.ai? Copy AI. Copy AI. And looking at your resume again, it looks like the second time that you kind of made a jump from a later to an earlier stage company. Like kind of say, like, oh, you reached a certain point and you're like, I got to go earlier. Is that your happy place? And why make a move this time? Clary's a great company. You had a great position there. It's fantastic. And yet there was something here that drew you to a new company. I love everything about Clary. The people, the product, the customers at such a well-run company. I don't know if there's a single person more responsible for my growth than a person named Kevin Fisher, who's the chief customer officer at Clary. And he's just been in my corner, my strongest advocate for a long time. But number two on the list is CEO at Clary, Andy Byrne. A long way of saying, leaving Clary was very hard. But you're right. I love the small companies. I love the speed, the agility. I love the pressure. I love to build. And that was the main thing for me. I wanted to go back to a smaller company to really be in that faster paced environment again. And also working in AI, like it's not going away. I want to be really well positioned or position myself as a marketing leader in generative AI or in AI because that's the future. So I have pretty firm conviction that copy AI is going to go very well for a multitude of reasons. At the very least, I learn a ton about how to position AI products, how to sell AI products. And I sort of future-proof my own career for that to that end. So that was kind of my calculus wanting to go back to a smaller company to build again in a new and developing and exciting industry or technology space rather that I think is going to be here for as long as we're alive. So I've been playing with your tool well before this interview I, around the New Year's. I started really digging deep 
into AI platforms and yours was one platform tool. just trying to, like you said, make sense of this landscape. And I'm going to read to you what I'm like, what I took away from it. Maybe you can tell me how accurate I am, but one of the things that was very interesting, yes, it, it does, it can generate copy as the name suggests, but unlike ChatGPT, where it's kind of like these prompts existing in isolation, like you can upload your documents, you know, your positioning statements, your various things, like create a corpus of company specific information that the platform can look to and reference. And then there's a whole workflow thing. Like remember your team, Jacqueline, was responding to me on LinkedIn a few times and saying like, yeah, we can do this, we can do that. Like you have this workflow engine built in. So there's all these kind of disparate pieces, generating copy, consuming and, and analyzing existing text and leveraging that. And then the ability to run automated workflows. AMI, even on point in understanding what it does correctly. And how do you see all these pieces working together going forward for GDM teams? You're spot on, Justin. That's a really good read on, on what we do. I would say most people are pretty familiar with ChatGPT or with Bard. And that effect of that ecosystem of that chat bot, that AI chat client, is the building blocks for what we call workflows. What workflows are is they are chained together prompts, effectively, that are purpose-built to achieve some sort of outcome. So for example, take this sales transcript and write a blog post based on the aha moments in this sales meeting. If you were to use ChatGPT to do this, you would have to first, you'd have to share the transcript with them with it has its own security issues, but you'd have to say, read this transcript, find the moments where the prospect had some sort of aha moment, extract that aha moment and extract the key points from it, and then write a blog post in this format. And you'd have to issue those prompts to ChatGPT one at a time. And then that's all you have to do that over and over again if you ever want to create blog posts. What we can do is we codify all of those actions into a single workflow that you can then install across your business and anybody at your business can use it for whatever purpose they want. And that is obviously just one example of infinite examples of things that you can do using our workflow engine. Now, the second thing that I think is pretty cool is we can integrate with any of your systems or tools that you have, whether that's your CRM or it's productivity tools or it's Notion or Coda or whatever you can integrate our workflows into. So for example, we run a lead scoring workflow internally, which is really cool. And what the lead scoring workflow does is it says, given this inbound lead, look at their LinkedIn profile. So there's a workflow that matches email address to LinkedIn profile. Scrape their LinkedIn profile, learn about their work history, look at their account, put together an account plan, understand what's going well or what isn't going well at their account. Score this lead based on that lead information and account information, route that lead to an AE and write a handful of emails to that person based on likely use cases for our product. And that happens with every single inbound lead that comes our way. All of that information gets written to the lead record and account record in our CRM. So all the account planning information is there, all the lead information is there, and the sales rep doesn't have to lift a finger. They just have their lead list and they see it fully enriched with all the information they care about, all the account information they care about. And when they call that person, they have recommended use cases for copy AI and you know whatever the persona is that came our way. And they can have an informed, intelligent conversation with that person because everything they need is right there in their flow of work. It doesn't require any change management. It doesn't require them to adopt new tools. They just get it all, everything they need right in their systems. And so it's that kind of platform orientation, that kind of infrastructure orientation that makes copy AI really powerful. My own point of view on AI has been like, let's use it to do the repetitive things that a machine can excel at, finding information, extracting information. You don't need a human's insight or mind doing that, and then use it to enable that person to do their job better. And I think you know it ties back to the first question on SDRs and what's their future. I think the way that you just communicated that vision to me, like someone logging in and instead of just like, all right, who's this person? Let me find out about them. It's like all there. So what efficiencies have you seen? Whatever you can share, feel comfortable sharing like with your sellers. Is it going right to the AE in your case right now? Or do you have SDRs that are getting that? What we do, Justin, is lead scoring is super important and so often really underwhelming <laughs> and something of a black box. And so sales teams, myself included, more or less completely distrust lead scoring because they don't actually understand what its inputs are. And so what we're able to do is we're able to qualitatively define what a good lead is for us and why. So we can say a tier one lead for us comes from companies XYZ size, this level of seniority, 
and this kind of tech stack. And then the AI goes and does all the matching and then gives a rationale to the salesperson to say, this is a tier one lead because XYZ reason. They use this tool. They've been at the company this long. And so we're able to both limit the universe of leads that get followed up on, which is a good thing. Like it doesn't, we're not drowning our reps. And B, when they are calling down on those reps, they have actual real information that they can use. So long way of saying conversion rates, just from that one little workflow of lead scoring, conversion rates from lead to opportunity are like 80% because of the workflows that we've created. We're not doing this at hyperscale yet, but we're talking about probably somewhere 100 or so leads a week in that tier one definition, which is the center of the ICP bullseye for us. And we're getting a huge conversion rate of those leads. We're not down to the 1% conversion rate that so many other organizations see when they're just throwing mass volume indiscriminately at their team. So we're trying to find efficiencies that way and not waste people's time with underqualified leads. This is probably an impossible question to answer, but it's maybe the last one we'll have time for. So might as well throw it out there. <laughs> we just said it, the things that you're talking about today would have seemed like, you know, Jetsons level futuristic 18 months, two years ago. Yeah. And now I'm going to ask you what's going to be happening in two to three years. Let's assume Copy AI is a big company. It's hugely successful, but clearly you and your team are, are thinking about this uh, as much or more as anybody else out there because it's your business. Paint me a vision of, of this future. What will it look like? The paradigm that we're all used to right now is these models that we call LLMs, large language models. And these LLMs that we're interacting with that are trained to produce some sort of content creation for us. And they're very useful, but they're generalized. There is a universe in the not too distant future that's more of a SLM, a small language model, which is all of your company's information into a system like Copy AI as an example, so that you can go and ask any question, build any workflow, basically power your entire business that's specific and bespoke to your business. So I know that's not super specific and I know that sounds a little bit broad, but I see that as the next era of business intelligence is all of these AI capabilities that are trained on your data, trained on your information. That knowledge base that you said you have, Justin, 150 pages of documentation, like that's a language model. And if you went and you had the right architecture to put that into an AI system and you could then go query it in any way or build workflows against it in any way, imagine how powerful that would be. And so that's what we believe is going to happen for businesses. Probably not, it's not going to take five years. I think it's sooner than that. And is Copy AI going to provide the infrastructure for companies to build those models or do you think those models will just exist and then you'll tap into them? I think it has to be guided or guarded in some way because there's so much security concern there. Product team, if you're listening to this, I'm not making any promises. I don't know. But safe I, Harbor. I think, yeah, Safe Harbor, exactly. I think that's the direction we're going. I, I hope it is anyway, because it's so valuable. Fascinating chat, Kyle. I'm so happy that you uh, could come speak with me today. We'll be watching carefully uh, what you and the team do. And thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Justin. Thanks again for having me. Hey, everyone. I want to invite you over to the RevOps FM Substack community, where you can sign up to get rough transcripts, show notes, longer form articles, and other bonus content. Just head over to revops.fm slash subscribe to get free access. I'd also love to know what you thought of the episode and to hear suggestions for topics you want to learn about. Feel free to leave a comment on Substack or send me an email at justin at revops.fm. Thanks for listening.